Hey, everybody. Can you do me a quick favor? If you like the conversations, conversation, if you like the conversations we are sharing on Plucking Up, or if the show has motivated you or inspired you or honestly just made you feel less alone through your own pluck ups, can you please subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? I really appreciate all of your support, and I am so grateful that you are a part of this plucky community. You are listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with artists and leaders and entrepreneurs about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns, and more difficult seasons. And they also share how they moved on and up to keep creating and inspiring others, too, to build lives of purpose and passion and impact. I'm your very grateful host, Liz Bohannon. All right, you guys. Sometimes in life, you have the pleasure of coming across these humans who happen to have the words and the energy and this really unique power to invite you into seeing the world and yourself in a new way. And this is how I feel about today's guest, Levy Ajayi Jones. She is a sought-after speaker, a podcast host, and she thrives at the intersection of, get this, comedy, technology, and justice. Quick, if you can name one other person in your life that thrives at that intersection, you win a prize. I love it. Uh, Lovey also happens to be the author of the New York Times bestselling book called I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. And she's currently working on her second book, Professional Troublemaker, the Fear Fighter Manual, which will be released in March. I met Lovey years ago at a conference where we both spoke. And a lot of times, you know, like I hang out backstage and whatever, maybe do some other work. And this time I sat my booty in the seat in the audience. (laughs) I think I scored a front row seat. I was just so captivated by her honesty and her hilarity. And I cannot wait to share more of that with you here today. In this episode, Lovey talks to us about her move from Nigeria to the U.S. at a pretty young age, how it shaped her, informed her, her journey of both fitting in and standing out. We talk about a painful, just kind of flat out failure that was actually the thing that led Lovey to find her voice in blogging all the way back in 2003, you guys, original blogger. And she talks about how she just finally owned like her place and her voice and her identity as a writer and how owning that really opened up a lot of doors for her. I really hope that Lovey's energy and wisdom help you own your voice and own your position and take up the space in your own life. I think it's safe to say you're going to feel pretty plucky after hearing from Lovey. So without further ado, here we go. Lovey, thank you so much for joining me on the Plucking Up podcast. I am so excited to dive in with you today. Yes, indeed. Glad to be here. So I would love if you would start by taking us as far back as you are willing to go with us. Would just love to hear a little bit about what was your experience growing up? What's your relationship with your family? And maybe what were some of those like very earliest kind of childhood 
inklings about who you are and who you were going to become? Yes. Um, I am Nigerian, born and raised. Grew up there. had a great childhood. Grew up around a loving, loud family. <laughs> Nigeria is a boisterous country. It's really energetic people. We moved to the United States when I was nine. And it was the first time I was ever the new girl anywhere. So that was a culture shock. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, kids adapt to everything. Mm. Um, I actually have like a strong Nigerian accent, of course. Mm -hmm. And I learned to lose my accent by just like listening to my classmates speak. Mm. And I was like, oh, I could do that. And by high school, I actually lost most of my accent. Wow. By high school. Mm -hmm. That's pretty mm -hmm. wild. I mean, that ended up being what, four years? So yeah. Yeah. And was that a spoken value of like, hey, if you move to America you need to lose the accent or was that more you as a child kind of subtly picking up the cues about what needs to happen in order for you to belong? I think both. I think it's one of those things where when you're nine, you don't want to be different from everybody else. Totally. And having this strong accent instantly othered me. And I was like, you know what? I got to figure out a way to sound like the rest of them do. Yeah. So yeah, I just like listened to people speak and then just was like, okay. Again, I also think it's the adaptability of kids. Sure. Like yeah. kids are chameleons in that they can take on what's around them. So mm. ultimately I became a product of my environment. Yeah. But, you know, I was still probably Nigerian. I still ate jollof rice. <laughs> I still got home and spoke Yoruba half the time. So I basically operated in two different worlds. Yeah. The unconscious strategy that children can employ quite brilliantly to belong is so fascinating. Mm. I have um, a younger half sibling. And when he was like eight, so I'm an adult at this point. So I'm viewing conversations with an eight-year-old very differently, you know. Mm -hmm. He was like eight and we were in the car talking and he was like, just like talking about his life. And I'm asking questions about school and different stuff. And he was like, yeah, you know, um, I'm not the best at sports. And so there's like the sports people. And so I don't think that's where I'm going to be. And like, I'm smart, but like, I'm, I'm not the smartest. And so I don't think that's who I'm going to be. He's like, but you know, like, there's no funny kid in our class yet. And so I think there's like, I think that's what I'm going to lean into. <laughs> and it was like, it, I was, like that. it was so like for an eight year old to hear them say like, I'm evaluating the situation. I see an opening over here. I could fit into that. Maybe that'll be he my filled, thing. He fit the gap. Totally. And I just, that was years and years ago. And I just remember being so struck by Obviously, he could articulate it, but just wondering how many children, even if they can't articulate it, that's what they're doing is they're just looking around kind of being like, what do I need to do? Where's the gap I can fill? What do I need to do to fit in? And how much of who we are and who we ultimately become are like a product of of that process? And it sounds like you just kind of came in. You read the room. Basically, I read the room. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. exactly what happened. I read the room and, and said, all right. OK, so what? If we were to flash back to you in high school, you know, you've been in the United States for a while. You've kind of settled in. How would people describe you? What would my experience have been with you in high school? So in high school, I was on the basketball team for the first two years. So okay. I remember like within the first week of high school, basketball tryouts happened. And I was like, ooh, because I actually really like basketball. And I played basketball a little bit in elementary school. I actually was on the team. So... I tried out for basketball. I made the team. 
So my experience freshman year was school ends at three. I go to the gym and change and I am in practice until six or six thirty. So there's that. I was in honors English and algebra. I met one of my first friends in high school, my first period, which was algebra because we both have a last names. His last name is Andrews. So he was right behind me, Ajayi. And we're still friends today, but us meeting in that class set the tone because we end up getting separated in the class because we were disruptive because we were cracking <laughs> each other up too much. So like, I think we messed up the seating chart because our teacher had to be like, okay, I, y'all two cannot no. be next to each other in class. <laughs> it really did set the tone in high school because I ended up making this group of really goofy friends. Like mm. we would spend any time we had cracking each other up. Like if we had any classes together, it was definitely a problem. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sophomore year, I had a class. It was an English, it was honors English. I was always in honors English, but I had an honors English class with Kiari, that friend, and a few other friends. And somebody posted on Facebook two years ago, some type of, they must have been going through their high school memories. And I guess in high school, she used to take notes on like all the random shenanigans we used to be up to. <laughs> And she found this box and in the box was a note that she had written that talked about the day that I um, did a prank on our English teacher. Okay. And I used to wear bandanas sometimes. Like I'd come to school wearing bandanas, even though they didn't love for us to have on head coverings. Hmm. My English teacher apparently was especially not a fan of bandanas, which I had not, I'd forgotten. So in this note, apparently one day I sent a note to everybody in class and said, tomorrow, everybody should come wearing bandanas just to piss Mr. Johnson off. (laughs) (laughs) So our class was split into two in that half of the class was on the left side. The other side of the class was the right side. We're all facing each other. So somehow between it making it from the left side to the right side, Mr. Johnson intercepted the note. And discovered uh, my wily plans. I was like, dang it. So, so the next good. day he came wearing a bandana. No. Yeah. That yeah, is yeah, yeah. so good. I hope he's listening to this somehow right now. You got to give him props for that. Oh my right? gosh. I was that's like, so that's good. cool. In high school, that's who I was. Like, I definitely had a few classes where the teachers was like, yo, you make my class live. Today, fast forward however many years, you refer to yourself as a professional troublemaker. So it sounds like there's some pretty clear connections between who you were as a kid and and who you grew up to be. (laughs) I'm still this person. I've been the the exact person. I'm like, yo, me in high school is me right now. I'm so impressed you just figured out a way to monetize monetize it. It's amazing. That's what I do. (laughs) But I want to talk about... From what I know about you and what I've heard about your story, it's not like when you were in high school, you were like, okay, I have this penchant for humor, for mischief. I'm going to use that in the form of being a writer, a podcaster, you know, a blogger, a speaker. Tell us a little bit about kind of that journey. I think I remember hearing at one point that you thought 
you knew you were going to be a doctor. <laughs> so it was like you had actually a vision yeah. for what you were going to do professionally that, spoiler alert, unless you you know are just like moonlighting as a doctor and I don't know it, didn't come true. So tell us a little bit about that journey of thinking you knew where you were going to go and how that played out for you. Yeah, so... Senior year of high school, I took a psychology class. I loved, loved that okay. class. Like, so incredible. Learned so much. And I was like, oh, snap. I really love psychology. So going into college, I went to the University of Illinois. Psychology pre-med was my major. Because I wanted to be a doctor since I was four. Like, wow. Okay. Because I was really smart. Like, effortlessly smart. I was one of those kids, like, got high grades without really trying. Yeah. And just, I wanted to help the world. Like I had this deep sense of responsibility for people around me. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And other people were like, yes, you're going to be a doctor. It's going to be great. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, college happened. And that first semester I had to take chemistry 101. Okay. That was like mm-hmm. a basic elective to take for pre-med. Like just get it started. And let me tell you, chemistry 101 beat me up. Okay. Chemistry 101 was so hard for me. I don't understand why mm. it was so hard because I took yeah. a one chemistry class in high school. I'm pretty sure I got like a B. Guaranteed it wasn't an A, but it wasn't horrific. Yeah. <laughs> so um, starting college and taking that class and I think I was struggling from day one. Like mm. I remember being like, oh, I'm gonna have to come to this class for real. Like, you know how in college you want to cut class because now nobody's looking at you. Like your parents aren't there. You can cut class. I was like, no, no, no. I actually got to go to this class because I was cutting my psychology classes left and right because I was like, mm, mm-hmm. not a problem. Still going to get this A. But chemistry, I went all the time. Like I was in my mm-hmm. TA stuff. I went to my professor. Struggle. At the end of the semester, I get my grade and it was a D. Mm-hmm. And I've never gotten a D before, yeah. ever. And I think that was the only D I ended up getting ever in life because once I got that D, I was like, okay. So here's the thing. You don't want to be a doctor because you don't even like hospitals. You don't like blood. You'll be the worst doctor ever. Drop the pre-med. It, it's not even worth it. And I like, I instantly dropped that pre-med. It was mm-hmm. like, usually I'm very much like resilience. Don't quit. Nope. I quit. I was like, nope, this is not for me. And that semester I started blogging because my friends peer pressured me into doing it. So mm. some of my high school friends actually, I ended up rooming with two of my high school friends. Okay. And yeah, started a blog on Zanga. Back then you had yeah, two options. Zanga, come on. Life Journal or Zanga. Uh-huh. And I was on Zanga. And it was a blog that just chronicled my college career. Like whatever yeah. random shenanigans I was feeling and, you know, the exams I wasn't studying for, uh, roommate beef. Do you still have that Zanga or an no. archive of it? So when I graduated in 2006 with my psych degree, I deleted that blog. I mean, I saved the post, so I have the post somewhere. <laughs> Do you ever go back and read them? No, no. It's going to embarrass me. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh what yeah, no, wisdom and foresight you had as a senior in college to take that off the internet before you became a big deal. <laughs> right? You I were was like, very Let's strategic. Because I was like, you know, I've outgrown this thing. So, you know, I'm going to start a new one. So yeah. I started awesomelylovey.com. Yeah. I was like, instead of talking about my life, I'm going to talk about the world as I see it. Yeah. So I was talking about TV, shenanigans, movies, award shows, race, politics, like anything that was on my spirit, I wrote about. Yeah. And at that point I was working 
for a nonprofit as marketing coordinator. Because I also fell in love with marketing in, in college. Okay. I did a marketing internship and I was like, oh, I'm good at this. And being an early adopter of all social platforms, because okay. I've been on Facebook since July 2004. Okay, your like mental cataloging of dates is very noticeable and impressive. <laughs> it's like very like precise. You just keep pulling these dates out. I don't know how, but I'm like, I, I think I put a pin in my memories. Yeah. Where I'm like, ah, okay. And then I tie something to it. But I remember yeah. joining Facebook July 2004, which was five months after Facebook started. Okay. Being an early adopter, I had been on these platforms for a minute. Like 2008, I joined Twitter. I joined Instagram 2012. Like, okay. so yeah. with the marketing background, I still thought I was going to go to grad school for psychology. I don't know why. But my blog kept on like taking off. Like mm. people would read my blog and share it with somebody else. And then next thing you know, I'm seeing comments from people who I don't even know in real life. So that's when I was like, oh, other people are finding this thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I won my first award for the blog in 2009. Wow. And it was for uh, best humor blog in the Black Web mm. Blog Awards. And I was like, oh, snap. Okay. April 2010, I get laid off my job. Okay. I really think I got fired. <laughs> I really think I got fired, but they were doing me a favor by just laying me off because I had become a terrible employee. Oh, okay. Because of your moonlighting side hustle. Yes. I yeah. was at work working on my blog. Yeah. <laughs> like I was I'd be sitting there supposed to be working on this media kit and I'd be sitting up there writing blog posts. Yeah. And I think I think I fell asleep in a meeting. <laughs> I was trash. <laughs> I was definitely <laughs> trash as an employee towards the end because I had gotten restless. Yeah. But I wasn't going to quit. Yeah. I was just like, ah, it's fine. I'm all right. You fell asleep in a staff meeting <laughs> with seven people. <laughs> Ma'am, you are trash. Like, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, oh, when I got laid off, I was like, oh, shoot, what am I going to do now? But, you know, I am a very resourceful person. If there's nothing else about me, it is that I am resourceful mm -hmm. and I will always find my way. Yeah. So I, because I was still looking for full-time jobs, yeah. but I look for those. I will do what I was doing for my full-time ex job for small business owners and bloggers, which was to help them tell their stories in digital properly. Yeah. And that was one of my gifts. Like, so I basically started... Uh, consulting and helping people build their websites. Like I learned how to build WordPress sites because mm. I built my own. Yeah. And from people seeing my own tag underneath, like designed by Austin Lee Lovey, they mm -hmm. were like, oh, you can design web WordPress sites, do mine. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that, but still looking for full-time jobs because I was like, I need good insurance. Yeah. I didn't think working for myself was a thing that I wanted to pursue because I was just like, I like the safety of somebody else giving me a check. Mm-hmm. But I basically never got a chance to get another uh, full-time job. Well, I did get another full-time job one time. It was for a global brand doing their social media. I got hired to be their social media manager. Like, that's my genius zone, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. When I went in <laughs> that day, you know, wearing my business casual slacks, I was very <laughs> serious about it. I was like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to wear the button up. I'm going to be in some slacks. And I'm going to do this thing. Man... I got there. One of the first assignments they had me do was like put together like a PowerPoint, uh -huh. which I was like, cool. Like, again, my genius zone. This is where my skills lay. Yeah. So I should be fine. 
by like 1 p.m. of me sitting in this office, I felt the walls closing in on me. I was like, oh, God, is this place getting smaller? <laughs> like, or is it just me? Like, I wanted to fall off the chair and just lay on the ground. Yeah. So I finished the day off. And then that night, I wrote an email to my new boss. Thanking them. One for day the, in? My, you literally one day? Yes. Okay. I sent an email on some like, thank you for my first and last day. Wow. And I resigned. And that's when I was like, mm, yeah, you probably do need to work for yourself at this point because you in offices <laughs> don't work because that was disastrous. Like, <laughs> who quits after one day? Me. Okay, I quit after one day. I, okay, I, I feel like my spirit knows when it does not belong somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it will walk away very quickly. Yeah. I end up being like, all right, so let's make this marketing consultancy work. But really, the writing is what I was, I needed to focus on also. Cause yeah, I was a writer, but I didn't consider myself a writer. I considered myself a blogger, somebody Mm -hmm. who just blogged. Yeah. Right. Because the title of writer felt so heavy. It felt so Mm -hmm. like, like it came with so much. I was like, oh my gosh, Toni Morrison's a writer. Yeah, totally. Right. Terry McMillan, writer. Okay. I think when you raise your hand and say I'm a blogger, there's a very wide spectrum and there's a lot of room for what that means. Yes. Yeah, there's something about those titles. I'm a writer that feels serious. And then it feels like the expectation. It's scary to take yourself seriously. Yeah. And how long do you feel like it was until you were able to like fully claim that to say like, hi, I'm Lovey and I'm a writer. 2012. Okay. So how many years after you started your blog was that? Nine. Okay. Nine years. (laughs) Nine, ridiculous. But yeah, end of 2011, I get an email from a, from a producer in Hollywood who was like, I read your blog. I think you're mm-hmm. dope. Have you ever thought about doing press coverage at the Academy Awards? And I was like, no, I didn't even really think about that. And she was like, I think you should. And I can get you credentials for it. So in a month, I got credentials for the Academy Awards. Wow. For, to do press on the red carpet and backstage. Because often when you see journalists and media people, they'll do red carpet and they have to go back home. We also got backstage. So I remember that day I was backstage. There's all these journalists. There's a different room backstage at the Academy Awards that is just for journalists to sit and like file their stories and send them out. Like there's a big old screen and there's like five rooms back there. Like the room that... Uh, winners come to where they do answer questions. There's a room for like journalists just sit in and just file their stories. There's one room that's just like you can sit there and just watch from backstage. There's like food around. Well, me being the unserious person I am, I was just live tweeting, but at one point I didn't live tweet for like 30, 40 minutes. And my sister texts me and she's like, Mom just called me and said she hasn't seen a tweet from you in a while. And I said, <laughs> First of all, she knows what Twitter is. How? Who told her about Twitter? But that's because I was back there eating Wolfgang Puck shrimp and chocolates. So, like, that was what I was concerned about. Can we blame you? Can we blame you? My priorities in that moment was like, let me get that. Ooh, is that cake? That's what I was doing backstage at the Academy Awards. Okay, useless. So, (laughs) and I feel like, but that moment really kind of crystallized to me the power of my words and where it got mm. me. It got me in the same room as people from CNN, from BBC, from Entertainment Weekly, Entertainment Tonight, and here I am as Austin Lee Lovey in the same room as them. 
I really have a tendency to do this, and I think I see it a lot in other people, that the skills that come naturally to you, I devalue them. I'm like, oh, that's something anybody can do. These things over here, and it's always the things that I'm not naturally good at, that my... I don't gravitate towards my brain doesn't feel like it like picks it up very quickly. I'm like, that's what smart people do. That's what real people that are adding value, you know, do. And there for me came this moment where I was like, oh, the thing that comes so naturally to you just because it's easy doesn't mean it's not valuable and it's not easy to other people. Did you have a moment in your kind of journey where you were like, oh, this thing that I just do because I think it's fun and this is the way that I feel like wired and this is how I see the world and this is how I communicate it. Other people are actually finding value in that. Like it's a real thing. Absolutely. I think what happens is we discount the thing that is innate to us that comes easy to us because we're so used to having to struggle for everything. We're so used to having to strive for everything. And then we forebode that thing that is too easy. We think, I know, surely that can't be it. And that's how I felt. Like I've always Mm. been a natural writer. I would write papers and get A's, even though I just wrote it three hours before it was due. Yeah. And it was something that, and I always excelled at that piece. I've always been really good with using my words. So all of that, I was just like, eh, writing. No, I'm not a writer. Writers are people who sit there and like, oh, I have yeah, yeah. writer's block. And they, you know, they, they, they like labor at it. And for me, words would just pour out of my fingers. So I think what we have to understand is things are gifts for a reason. Mm. A gift is not something that you necessarily earned or you had to work at, you know what I mean, Ooh, to have it. That's good. But because it's a gift, we're like, I don't trust it. I don't trust where it's coming from. And when people often ask like, you know, how do you find your purpose? Honestly, it's not about finding your purpose as much as not doubting what's in front of you. That's so good. There's so many times when what we're supposed to be doing is right in front of our faces. And we, instead of taking that on, we, because of our trauma response, will say, no, 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 it has to be harder than this thing. This thing feels too easy. Mm. No, no, that thing that feels too easy that you can't stop thinking about that, you know, you can do in your sleep, the thing that you wake up thinking about is probably that thing, that purpose mm. that you're looking for is in the ease. It's in the thing that comes to you, whether or not you practice it. Of course, you get better at it. You hone your gifts, but identifying it and not doubting it is the first step to being able to hone it. Because if you don't identify it, how are you going to hone it? So honestly, I finally ran out of excuses to stop being afraid of calling myself a writer. Yeah, I stopped putting things in my way to tell me I'm not this thing. So when I finally ran out of excuses and I finally said, you know what? I am a writer. All these doors opened. And honestly, yeah. that is <laughs> that is the reason why I really wanted to write this next book, Professional Troublemaker. Hmm. It's because I thought about my journey, about those moments when I was afraid of a title. So then I didn't take it seriously. And I'm just like, mm. so many of us exist and do that. So many yeah. of us, whatever it is, even if it's not a title, even if it's just a job, even if it's just something that you love, but you're so afraid of what comes with it. Yeah. I know because I've been there and I'm like, yo, it took me nine years after I started writing outside of the classroom to call myself a writer. When you were talking about the gift, like I use that language of like, oh yeah, you have a gift for this or... But for some reason, I haven't connected it to like the nature of what a gift is of like kind of freely given, not Mm -hmm. necessarily earned. Mm -hmm. 
But what would you say to somebody who's listening to this and they're like, well, I mean, that's nice that you had something that came so naturally and easy to you. I don't feel like I have a gift. I feel like I am struggling and I try things and I'm not great at it. I don't feel like I've operated in that, to use your words, like genius zone. What would you say to somebody who feels like, I don't know if I have that? I would push back against it. You know, we think the gift needs to look in a certain way. Everyone's mm. gifts is not creative. Everyone's gift, you know, is not about being a writer. It's not about being a photographer. Some people's gifts are math and numbers. Some people's gifts is organizing. Some people's gifts are to be able to see chaos and make sense out of it. Hmm. When you're looking for a certain type of gift, you might miss out on what yours is because you're expecting your gift to look like mine or like Liz's or like some other person. No, no, no. Your gift is going to look completely different and that's fine. So it comes down. I always say people need to figure out what is the thing that people always come to you for? Yeah. Even if it's randomly like your friends who just are like, Ooh, this is my go-to person for this thing. Mm -hmm. What are people constantly saying? Like, Ooh, that's good. When you do it, some people's gifts is cleaning. Like, Oh my gosh, they will clean something and you just be like, I can see my face in this thing. I didn't even think that was possible. (laughs) So I honestly think everybody has some sort of a gift. It doesn't matter who you are. There's something that you are better at naturally than me. Mm -hmm. Something. And it just comes down to not moving that thing out of your mind whenever it pops up. Because you're like, oh, that can't be it. No, that can't be it. Or everyone can do that. I'm telling you right now. We all think everybody can do anything we can do. I was like, everybody can write. Like, no, no, no. Everybody can't write. Everybody definitely can't write like you. So whatever that thing is, it just, you just need to be fine with knowing that it's going to look different. Yeah. But I need you to not look past it. I want to go back in your story. You talked about in your corporate job, you're one day in. Your discomfort with being how I heard that was kind of there was not alignment between your values and who you were and what you wanted to do in the world in this external environment. And so that discomfort propelled you. You didn't want to experience that discomfort. Meanwhile, a really big tenant of your teaching and a really big value that you hold is getting real comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and how that really is a tool for us to learn to kind of get past our like ego and shame responses Mm -hmm. to new information and to actually like grow and evolve. Can you help us understand how you discern between bad discomfort, the type that you experienced in the corporate environment that was like, no, this means I need to walk away. It's not right. And the good discomfort when you're like, oh, this doesn't feel good. I don't like to hear that, but I'm going to sit here. I'm going to listen. I'm going to stay open-minded. How do you discern between those two types of discomfort? That's a good question. There's some discomfort that feels uncomfortable because it doesn't feel right. Just something about it feels like you are in the wrong place. For me, it almost feels physical where I'm just like, I just want to get out of this place. Mm -hmm. There's some discomfort that's like, This makes me feel like I'm stretching. Okay. Like, you Mm -hmm. know when you're stretching, even when you're exercising, Mm -hmm. and you're just like, this is so uncomfortable. I know I need to do this. Mm -hmm. That for me is the difference. There's some things where I'm like, ah, I need to do it, even though this is really hard. I will feel wrong if I left it. Yeah. 
I will feel like I'm betraying myself if I left it. Yeah. It's almost like the productivity of the discomfort. Like imagining yourself, if I stay here, does the discomfort actually lead to something productive within me? Yes. Yes. Or if I stay here, does it just kill a part of my soul that that be hard part, to find that back? part. And you know, growing pains are uncomfortable, right? Like when you think about when a baby is growing teeth, that's when they're pissed. But at the other end of it, they can chew meat. Amen. Okay. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there's the discomfort of putting your hand in fire. At the other end of it, there's nothing yeah. good waiting for you. You're just going to have third degree burns. Yep. So that's the thing. Something are teeth and then some things are third degree burns. You just got to know what is what. You've made a career out of being a professional troublemaker. Book coming out in 2021. March 2nd, 2021. Available for pre-order. Thank you. Is it available for pre-order now? It is. You Go can pre-order get it. Now. Audio- you guys- I, just, I just recorded the audiobook last week. You did. Yay. I love audiobooks. Yeah. You guys go order it. Pre-order. It's so helpful to the author. If you're going to buy the book, buy it on pre-order. And I'm going to buy Please the book. Do. I'm going to buy it on pre-order Please after do. this. After this. So you've, you've made a living. Your life, your calling is being a professional troublemaker, calling out truth. You do that in a way that I really, really admire the three questions that you ask yourself once you say it, right? When you're like second guessing yourself. So you ask yourself, did I mean it? Can I defend it? And did I say it in love? And those are your like three checkpoints for your truth telling, if you will. This is kind of a side note, but this makes me so mad I was, you know, doing my background research. I'm a good podcaster, (laughs) whatever. And I'm rewatching your TED Talk. And in the opening, in the line about your TED Talk that it's like describing you, it says that she isn't afraid to speak her mind or to be the one dissenting voice in the crowd. And neither should you. That was the opening thing on your TED Talk bio. And then you freaking listen to your actual TED Talk. And you're like, no, I'm afraid. No, every time I do it, it feels like I'm jumping out of a plane. And I just think it's so interesting that our cultural narrative on fear is so deeply ingrained that someone listened to you say, no, I'm afraid every time I'm afraid. And I, but I've learned to do it even though I'm afraid and someone can hear those words. And then they write a bio that says, she's not afraid of anything, of you know, whatever. And so it's just like so. Right. right. You know what? You that's you might be the first person to ever actually pull that out. I don't know if I even read the description. That's funny. You're actually the first, first person to point this out and be like, guys, you actually got it wrong. That's funny. But I, I think it's a really interesting, like we do such a disservice to ourselves, to the people that we're trying to communicate with and serve when we make figures like you, these hyperbolic superhuman. She's moved past fear. She doesn't experience shame. She wakes up every day entirely confident and completely unafraid. And I feel like people hear that and they're like, well, that's really nice for lovey. But like, I'm over here. I'm a ball of nerves. I speak up and then I regret it. And then I question myself and I have a failure and I feel a lot of shame about it. I don't think that's the true story of who you are. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. I think there's a lot more depth. You've built a muscle over time that allows you to not let fear be the dictator of your life. But that doesn't mean that you don't experience it. And I honestly, again, like that is what this book is about. It's called the Fear Fighter Manual for a reason. And, And to that point, our relationship with fear and the way we talk about fear is so wrong. When we talk about be fearless, what we end up doing is making people feel somehow wrong 
forever being scared, anxious, yep. doubtful. For Christians, Christians do it a lot. Toxic positivity is real with us because we're like, you know, why have fear when you can have faith? How about you can have both? Amen, because fear sister. is literally the most natural human emotion. Like it exists to keep us safe from putting our hands yeah. in the fire. And I think that until we can be honest about the fact that we're all moving yeah. afraid, we're all existing in this world, being afraid of things left and right and things that might happen to us for us. And no matter how truth telling you can be, no matter how much you run through the, you know, the checkpoints, you might still do something that even though you think was the right thing doesn't yeah. land well. But my whole thing is the idea that like what happens when we give ourselves permission to fail, mm. what happens when we give ourselves permission to be afraid? But what I find is most important is that even when we are afraid, we are committed to the fact that we're going to do bold things. No one who has lived a life of note has done it by doing just bland things. You're going to constantly do things that scare you. Yeah. And yeah, like speaking the truth is like jumping out of the plane because, yeah, you don't know if you're going to land on your feet. You're never sure. Yeah. And we can't always tie the actions to some entitlement to positive landing. Mm. So we're always thinking, you know what? I will do that thing if it's going to work for me, guaranteed. What that is, is not taking any risk. Yeah. You can't guarantee something's going to go well. You can't guarantee that big job you want is going to go well. You can't guarantee the move to a new city is going to go well. There's no way to guarantee it. So people are constantly waiting for the guarantee to come. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not going to come. Like there will never be one thing that's going to be like, oh, this is a winning proposition. If it's big enough, there's no guarantee winning proposition. That's why risks are a thing. Not everybody takes them. If there was no risk, everybody would take it. Everybody would make the move, right? Everybody would want that job. Yep. Everything that we do in this world is risky. And anything of note is risky. If it's not risky, then it's not of note. So that's good. When people are speaking the truth and being like, oh, I don't want to pluck up and I don't want to, you know, be the one person in the room who's saying something other people would not agree with, you can't live just with the expectation that everything is going to go well. Can you give us an example? Is there a time that you'd be willing to share with us that you did something, you spoke up, you said something that the outcome of what happened actually really wasn't what you would have hoped and that you kind of had to sit with that discomfort of like, here's how I hoped that would have gone. Here's what actually ended up happening. I actually have a whole chapter in my book called Fail Loudly, where I talk about that moment. So I'm okay. not going to tell you okay. on here. Okay. People have to read it. It's a whole chapter where I talked about my most public fail. Like okay. face plant, trended on Twitter, that type of fail. I'll have you back on in 2021 maybe and we'll dive into it. Yes. Can you at least give us a foreshadowing into like, what was your, so you had a, we're, we're just going to imagine we're all going to read the book. So you're going to go, you're going to buy Professional Troublemaker because it's juicy. She's going to tell us about a big, fat, juicy pluck up. Um, and we're all going to know. Can you, can you tell us where that put you in a mental place? Like we all, I believe we all have kind of a specific, well-trodden shame narrative that when we experience that moment of like, oh, F, that was not how I envisioned this happening that we can kind of spiral into. Can you share what your kind of specific lovey brand shame cycle is where you go when those moments happen? Um, this is where it also helps to have 
to be clear on who you are and be clear on what's important and what you stand for is in the moments when you fail, when you fall on your face, what gets you back up, yeah. right? What makes you be like, okay, I'm going to try that again. Or I'm going to do something else bold and who knows if it's going to go well. It's very tempting to want to take your ball and go home mm-hmm. and be like, I will just shut up and never do anything of note again. But you can't. You know what? Lick your wounds for a bit, but like get back up. Do you have like a negative voice that kind of tells you a familiar untruth about yourself that you've like recognized over time of like, oh, no, no, that's not. I call it my gecko. That's like my insecure, bad fear acting self that's telling you that lie about yourself that you've like come to recognize over time. Yeah. I mean, every, here's the thing about the thing is like we usually have very loud voices in our heads that's telling us not to do something, say something or mm-hmm. telling us we're bad people when we fail. I think it's a practice to make sure the bad voice does not become the loudest voice. Yeah. And if it becomes the loudest voice for a hot second, being like, okay, I got to quiet that voice. Life never promised a smooth road. You know, just because you're operating your gifts and your purpose doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. You won't fall. You won't make wrong decisions. Yeah. But he's got to learn from it. You got to learn from it and keep moving and, and try to end up on higher ground. I think with every failure, we have a chance to be better than we were. I think what failure serves as is life's greatest teacher. And the only reason you fail is if you learn nothing from that teacher. Well, Lovey, thank you so much. I laughed so hard uh, and also feel like I learned a lot and you gave me some really good nuggets to go think on and and chew on. I'm going to pre-order, as all of you should, Professional Troublemaker. It's available for pre-order now. It comes out March 2nd. 2021 there is an epic juicy pluck up in there that you're going to get to read about so specifically if you are someone who um, sees your gifting or your calling and even if you don't as someone who speaks up and who creates out in the public um, or in a way in which other people can see you or comment um, it seems like this book and this pluck up will give you a lot of um a good reminder that like, hey, that's part of the game. We're all in it together. You're not alone. You're not broken. You're not messed up. This doesn't mean that you should go home and watch Netflix for the rest of your life. <laughs> that part, it, that part. And you know, I wrote this book for people who've ever been told they are too different. Okay. In yeah. any way, for people who've sat in rooms and wanted to speak up in the moments, mm. but didn't have the, didn't feel the courage right then. Yeah. For people who beat themselves up. For the times when they wish they would have spoken up. Oh, that's good. You know, I want you to understand that you're not alone in this process. And even those of us who show up really bold in the world still pluck up. We still are afraid. Yeah. And we are often still working on the practice of showing up as our full selves. But the difference is that we have been given permission or we gave ourselves permission to do it anyway. Yeah. It's just part of this life game. If you're going to play the game really well... You're going to have to do this and see how it lands. I love it. Lovey, what a treat. What an honor. I'm so grateful that you exist in the world and for your voice. And thank you so much for sharing it with our listeners and our community here on Plucking Up. Thanks, Liz. Thank you for having me, for following my work and seeing me and finding value in it. It's pretty easy, but you're welcome. Okay, I 
love just so much of that. But I think maybe one question that I'm going to leave you with is what is something that you just do naturally that you might have a tendency to devalue in yourself? Just thinking like, oh, okay, because it comes naturally to you, it's easy or it's not valuable. I just really want you to sit with that, to think about the gift that you have, the thing that happens to come easy to you, and to maybe entertain and wonder if that is actually a really incredible, beautiful gift and skill that you have to offer to the world that is really, really, truly valuable. Oh man, my face hurts from smiling so big. Lovey, you are a treat. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And if you did, will you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can follow me on Instagram at Liz Bohannon or at Sincerely Human on Instagram as well or human underscore media on Twitter. And if you're looking for something to do, y'all head over to SeikoDesigns.com. That is S-S-E-K-O designs.com. That's my day job. When I'm not podcast side hustling, I'm over at Seiko designing and concepting and working with amazing global partners who are making the most beautiful products. And then I'm hanging out with the Seiko fellows who are the impact entrepreneurs here in the United States who sell the products um, and they're building their own amazing lives and businesses of purpose and passion and impact. You can browse our site at SeikoDesigns.com. You can host a Seiko trunk show, which is super fun. And in addition to just having fun and doing some awesome stuff in the world, you get really beautiful, free stuff, which is awesome. And if you don't quite have a passion for fashion, we also have some amazing coffee to check out at Together Coffee. All right, that's all you guys. I will catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.